We are in the book of Hebrews tonight, so why don't you open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be talking about our eternal inheritance, Hebrews chapter 9, picking it up at verse 15. Once you have it, if you're able, stand with us for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to start at verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter, 15 to 28, Hebrews 9. The writer starts off this way. He says, for this reason, he, Jesus, Hebrews 9.15, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's our title tonight. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. When every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and the goats with the water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one, most, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer once, uh, he would ne needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Your word is living and powerful. We learned that in Hebrews 4. It's alive and it pierces deep and it gives us some of the deepest, most beautiful promises one could ever come across. And we are tonight gonna bask in some of those promises and learn a little bit more about this new covenant which you ushered in through your death on the cross and through your resurrection. And we are so grateful to be the recipients of an eternal inheritance. One, as Peter puts it, that is uh, not gonna be spoiled or defiled. No one's gonna take it away. It's reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God. And we are so grateful for that keeping power, that sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, that down payment that you gave us guaranteeing our future inheritance Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Your loving kindness, your goodness is better than life itself. And I pray tonight you would fill us up 
with that hope, that hope would be more and more the anchor of our souls as we navigate the stormy winds that can often be uh, found in this life. So help us, Lord, to just anchor ourselves to you and your promises. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Our eternal inheritance, some incredible uh, promises here in the word of God. So the writer starts off, and for this reason, 9.15, he looks back to verse 14 just for a moment. Take a look. He says, moving from the lesser to the greater, from the first to the second covenant, how much more will the blood of Christ, Hebrews 9.14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, here's the beauty of it, cleanse your conscience, that was our message last time, from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Now that new covenant has been inaugurated through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ is the mediator. When you hear the word mediator, just think of, a, of the idea of a go-between. Uh, I've been listening to Alistair Begg teach through 1 Samuel, and he mentioned something that I hadn't heard before, but it's a pretty cool thought. He said the word champion, and I looked this up just to confirm it, in Hebrew, uh, when you look at 1 Samuel 17 and David fighting Goliath, Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, and he was the man that stood between the Philistines and the armies of Israel. Well, David, little, little young David, who came to basically bring lunch to his brothers, uh, heard that guy you know, challenging the armies of Israel and basically decided to take him on. And David became the champion of Israel. And you all know what happened, right? He hit him with a single rock from the sling. Down goes Goliath, <laughs> right? And then he cut his head off with his own sword. And the beautiful imagery here is the giants that we face. We have a great mediator. David is a type of Christ. Christ is our champion, and he is the go-between. In our case, he's not the go-between between a giant, but the giants of sin and death and all that faces us in this life that we have to face as fallen human beings. And so that's the beautiful thing of a mediator. Jesus is the ultimate mediator. Moses mediated for the people. We saw the image of David here. We know Paul prayed for his brethren to be saved but Jesus is the ultimate mediator of the new covenant. That word covenant is dia feke. It's a key word in our study tonight. You might want to write it down if you're a note taker. Dia, D-I-A, feke, T-H-E-K-E. Now that word is going to switch in the text from what we know to be a covenant in all we've been learning about in terms of how covenants work. And we've learned how the covenant was inaugurated in the book of Exodus, where the commandments were given, the people agreed to do them, and then they were sprinkled with the blood. And the blood sealed that first covenant, that old covenant, if you will. But this word is going to switch from covenant to testament, and we all hold Bibles that have an Old and New Testament. And maybe you wondered, what does that word really mean when we talk about a testament? Well, in this case, a testament has moved, and we'll move in verses 16 and 17 to, to the idea of a will and testament. And the, the writer is going to shift now the focus from a covenant in a religious sense to give us an illustration, maybe we might say from everyday life or from maybe you would say secular life. 
And here's how we know this works, right? We know that perhaps uh, you have a loved one and they get their affairs in order. We all know that at some point we have to face this idea of doing a living trust. Uh, some of you have gotten around to it fairly early. Others of you have waited. And you realize that you've got to make some decisions about, you know, who's going to inherit your stuff, for example, and, you know, how you'll parse it out and how that's all going to work. And, and it's kind of a sobering experience in one sense, right? Because you're dealing with your own mortality and you're, you're you know, coming to grips with the fact that you're not going to live forever and your future generations are going to inherit whatever you can give them. And hopefully you first and foremost give them your faith, right? Because that's the only thing that's really going to last. The stuff will just be passed down until someone throws it away. But this is what's going on here. And the writer is going to shift uh, in verses 16 and 17. And this is what he's hinting at. He says, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption. Now, that's the idea of buying back a person in slavery, redeeming them out of slavery. Of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, and when you think of the word called, I'm almost imagining here with the imagery that I just laid out for you, being called into like an official uh, attorney's office where an executor might tell you how stuff's been divided up. And you gotta show up to learn you know, what you've received and how it's all gonna map itself out. And he says this, he says, that we who have been called, and you can write down chapter three, verse one as a cross-reference, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So in this uh, you know, image here of maybe a disbursement meeting that might take place, we would find out what the inheritance may be. We know it's eternal in quantity and quality, and it is to those who have been called who are gonna receive it. Now the called would include, look at the middle of verse 15 or the, the latter part, those who were under the first covenant. And maybe you have a question like many people do. Well, what happened with people under the first covenant like Moses or Aaron or David or Jonathan or Solomon or you can come up with a bunch of different names, right? Male and female, Sarah and you know others. And you might say, well, if they lived and died prior to the death of Jesus, how is it that their sins were dealt with? Because we've been learning that the animal sacrifices may have been symbolic. Uh, at best, they only gave a temporary covering until you sin the next time. So maybe you got a temporary reprieve, but only till you blew it again, and then the sacrificial system chugged on and on year after year, week after week, etc. So what about those people? How is it that their sins were dealt with and that their sins were washed away so that they could be in heaven? Well, we might call the next section, next section Christ's last will and testament. And here's where the shift takes place. He says, for where a covenant is, if you have a New King James, it says a testament, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. There must also of necessity be the death of the testator, New King James. In the case of a will, NIV, verse 16, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. For a covenant, 17, is valid only when, when men are dead. You can translate this now as a testament 
or a will is in force, New King James, after men are dead, since it has no power at all why the testator lives. Now in the imagery, Jesus is both the executed one and the executor of the will. He's the one that pays the ransom by his death to give you the inheritance, and he's the executor of the will. That is, he's the one who's gonna disperse all the blessings of your inheritance. And do you know what he has decided to give his children? Everything. Everything. All that belongs to Christ belongs to his people. See, when you got adopted into his family, this is the beauty of the result of your salvation. We focus a lot on our salvation, and we should, because it is the centerpiece of our faith. But the result of our salvation is an eternal inheritance. And it's been purchased by Christ, and he is going to disperse it to his people one day. And all that that means, and all that that looks like, we don't yet quite know everything. We have hints of it in the Bible, what we will inherit, but we know that the promises are going to be ours. And they're eternal in quantity and quality. There's nothing you have right now that could ever compare to that. Because everything that we have right now is temporal, right? I don't know how many years God's going to give me. But I know that I'm at one point in my human existence, unless Christ comes in my lifetime, I'm going to be on the side of drawing up papers to leave my stuff to somebody else. And Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, decries that thought. It's kind of a bummer to him because he says, I don't know how they're going to take care of it. Whether it's your Harley Davidson that you've surrounded with plexiglass in the garage. You know, I did that for a while until I didn't ride it anymore and then I sold my Harley. But whatever it may be, whatever is nearest and dearest to you, it might not matter to somebody else, but you're gonna give it away. You're gonna pass it on. And God so loved you that he not only purchased you, but he wants you to inherit the kingdom. Amen. And the kingdom is a place where every tear will be gone. There will be no more curse. The garden will be recaptured. I told you I taught a class for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, and I was talking about some of these, image, these images, and I was at a public school, which is uh, what Bible release time is doing, going into public schools, and keep that in prayer, and I, maybe you want to be part of that. We've got the bus. You've seen the bus out here, right? And I taught this idea that, you know, it's going to be Eden recaptured in the new Jerusalem, and the new heavens and new earth, and one of the students there, I think it was a fourth or fifth grader, said, Pastor Michael, I just have one question. Are we going to be naked? <laughs> and I was like, I certainly hope not. <laughs> In fact, that might, I think that became a, a prayer request out of the, following that class. Please, Lord, let us have coverings. Anyway, sorry to plant that thought in your mind. But in the case of a will, reading from the NIV, verse 16, it's necessary to prove the death of someone who made it. So maybe you've been the recipient of uh, perhaps you had a relative pass away and they divvied up some inheritance and maybe you got a part of that. And maybe you knew the person and there was a close relationship with them 
or maybe they were a distant relative, you didn't even know about them, and all of a sudden, you know, some, something comes your way. Let's just say some money comes your way. That, that's a nice little surprise if that happens, but it means all the more if you know the person who left it to you, amen? Because now you know that they wanted you to have this because of their love for you. And this is the story of our salvation, is that our God so loved us that not only did he purchase our salvation, but he wants to give us everything. And we know our first parents messed it up, right? They, they had all of this beauty, these beautiful conditions. They were told, just don't touch that one tree. <laughs> and, and we know what happened, right? They blew it. And we've been reaping the whirlwind of that sin for a long, long time. And so Jesus Christ is the mediator and the testator, if you will. He's the one who died for our sins, and he's also the executor of the will. And it's as if he says, Father, I want them to have everything that you've given me. And his inheritance, interestingly enough, is us. Do you know that the son... Uh, it's, it's pictured in Psalm chapter two, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The son, Christ, is given us as his inheritance. And the way that that got purchased was through his blood. And that's where the writer is going next. He says, therefore, even the first covenant, now speaking of the old covenant, verse 18, was not inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, this is back in Exodus 24, if you're taking notes, uh, to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool, which is, by the way, not mentioned in Exodus 24, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. And this is what he said. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. In Matthew 26, 28, for your notes, Jesus, very similar word says, this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, Matthew 26, 28, now the new, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So write down Matthew 26, 28, and right there maybe in your margin with Hebrews 9, 20. The first covenant was inaugurated with blood, we can see what, whose blood it was. It was the blood of calves and goats and so forth, and the blood of bulls. That blood, we learn in Hebrews 10, verse 4, it was impossible for it to take away sin. And so that's why the people under the first covenant only saw the promise from a distance. Moses saw it from a distance. David saw it from a distance. They had some prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, right? In the Psalms and Isaiah and other places, but they didn't see the full ful fulfillment of it. Abraham saw it from a distance. We'll learn that in Hebrews chapter 11. But nonetheless, he believed in the Lord and he was looking forward to the Messiah as we now look back to the Messiah. And the promise of the new covenant is retroactive for everyone who lived before Jesus died. That one sacrifice is retroactive. That is, it pays for all the past sins leading up 
to the time that Jesus died on the cross and all the sins that would be committed post the cross and resurrection. Amen? So if you ever had a a question about, well, what's the significance of an animal sacrifice? Maybe it had some temporary reprieve for people. How did Moses get saved? Abraham get saved? The same way we do, they looked forward to the cross or to the Messiah. We look back. That's why the cross of Jesus Christ is the pivotal moment or event in world history. And really, his life has dated the calendar of the world. And so in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle 21 and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. If you go back to Exodus 24, 4 through 8, and you don't have to look there now because it's pretty much um, quoted here by the the writer of Hebrews. It's not a pretty sight. some people, when there's any blood, and I, I'm, not, I'm not meaning to gross you out, but here's where we are in the Bible, so I'm just going to say it to you. Maybe, the, maybe any kind of blood that's shed freaks you out, and, and you don't want anything to do with it. And if you get a little cut, you know, you're, you're ready to pass, or somebody else is bleeding, you know, it's the end. Well, here, can you imagine being part of this group And Moses takes the blood of an animal and sprinkles it on you. And and literally, this is what happens. You had to wear the blood of that animal. You were literally covered with the blood. And some people look at this in our modern age and even people who are leaders of other religions and they say, that's a slaughterhouse religion, that Old Testament stuff. And, and Jesus on the cross, dying on the cross, shedding his blood, taking that brutal beating, as we saw, uh, you know, depicted in movies over the years, some more graphic than others, right? And people say, that's terrible. It's, it's repulsive. In fact, in the Roman mind, they didn't even want to hear the word crucifixion spoken at dinner parties. No, 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 no. We don't talk about crosses. We don't talk about people dying on crosses. That's the worst conversation piece. That is the way criminals are executed in Rome. They hang you on a cross and you die. And it's not a pretty scene. And the old covenant is filled with blood. And you have to imagine over the course of Israel's history from the time it was implemented until the time of Christ, it's hard to imagine how many animals must have died under this covenant and how much blood was shed. And by the way, the requirement was not just that you nick your finger or you nick a part of an animal and a little blood falls and that's sufficient. Whenever you hear about the blood... It's about a death. A death must take place. So Christ had to die on the cross, not just shed some blood, but he literally had to give his life up. That's the imagery of the will. A will is not enforced until the death of the testator, and that's the imagery of the covenant as well. And so if, for example, if someone was going to leave you Let's say you had a, an aunt and she was going to leave you a large amount of money and you were just waiting. You can't rush it. And if you decide to rush it, that aunt might write you out of the will. <laughs> if you call every week, she's still breathing. 
That's, that's probably not a good career move. Some years ago, uh, Paris Hilton was supposed to inherit fortunes from her family's Hilton hotel business. And she was up to some no good. I, I don't know what she's doing today, but she was not living a lifestyle that was pleasing to the founder of the Hilton hotel business. And they, he wrote her out of it and uh, decided to give what I recall uh, as $2.4 billion to charity. And I always wish that someone would think of living truth, you know, when they're <laughs> wanting to be so benevolent, you know? <laughs> but anyway. So in that case, someone lost out. But here's the deal. Whatever, whenever someone would write something like this, like a last will and testament, it's only kicking in when they die. And the new covenant only kicked in when Christ died. Prior to his death, and we would add his resurrection, the new covenant had not been inaugurated. Everybody was still living with the consequences of a system that could never fully take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 10.4, couldn't take away David's sin, Moses' sin, Solomon's sin. Anybody you want to think about, it wasn't sufficient. It was only either temporary or symbolic. But when Christ came as the mediator of a new covenant, everything changed. I want to show you three tenses of his appearing. In Hebrews 9.11, it says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. That's his first coming, Hebrews 9.11. Skip down to verse 24. But into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us is his current ministry. You could say verse 11 speaks of his incarnation and his work of redemption. Verse 24 is his current ministry to us. Skipping down to verse 28. He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. He appeared, he's appearing for us, and he will appear again. Amen? These, you could say these are the three tenses of Christ's appearing work. He came on the scene to do this work for us. And according to the law, Hebrews 9.22, one may almost say, and we'll explain that in a second, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, or there is no remission of sin. Now, why does the writer say, one may almost say? You look at the Old Testament sacrificial system and we, we've talked about it, right? Sacrifice after sacrifice. You read through Leviticus and specific requirements on how to do it and what animal and all of this and on and on it goes. But Leviticus 5.11 is one verse to write down and here's what it says. It says, if he, a poor person, Leviticus 5.11, is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he whose sin shall bring forth Bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil in it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And so the old covenant allowed, if you were poor and you couldn't afford an animal, you could offer a grain offering. This is why some writers would argue that the Old Testament sacrificial system is symbolic. Because how could a grain or flour offering cleanse me if uh, the blood has to happen, if a death 
needs to happen. And that's why some would say here, this, this is a hint that th- we're talking about a symbolic system. But God allowed for someone who was poor to do things in this way, a non-blood offering for sin. But generally speaking, the norm was an animal had to die, a sacrifice had to be made. And I want you to make a direct application to your own life. You and I are purified by the blood of Christ. You are not a spectator here. You're not sitting in the stands learning theology. Unless the blood of Christ has covered you, you have no forgiveness of your sin. You see, even though the the blood is a symbol for his death, and that's specifically what the writer's saying, it wouldn't be sufficient if Christ just shed a little bit of blood. He had to die in our stead. Yet, You and I are purified by his blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus in rapid fire. Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Acts 20, 28 says, he purchased us with his own blood. Ephesians 2 says these words, now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1 Verse 18 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Revelation 1, 5 says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. There's many scriptures I could give you. Uh, I'll give you one more. 1 Peter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure, 1 Peter 1, 2. And so all over the New Testament, this reference once again to blood, blood, blood. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. All over the Bible, we have this idea that without the intervening work of Christ, specifically his sacrificial death and resurrection, I'm under the judgment of God. And so because I'm in Christ, that sacrifice has been applied to me. We were talking in the prayer room Uh, before the service, and, and we were talking about the great exchange of the cross. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Whatever that fully means, I don't know that I fully understand it. But he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's what happened, the great exchange of the cross. His righteousness comes to us, and our sin goes to him. This is the great exchange. And I'll tell you what, it's pretty good to be on our side of it. Because what happened was he took the brunt, treated as if he had committed our collective sins of all humanity of all time. Can you imagine the sinless, spotless son of God who never even knew separation from his father or what that might even feel like, taking upon himself the sin and the muck and the mire of collective humanity? Just this room 
It would be an ugly scene if we listed all of our sins laid on him. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? Because God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit so loved the world that he gave and he gave and he gave. Therefore, 23, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. Now, scholars would say that the heavenly things can't be heaven. Heaven doesn't need to be cleansed. What needs to be cleansed is me. <laughs> and here's the deal. If I'm going to end up in heaven, and we all know that one day there'll be new heavens and a new earth, and it sure seems like the permanent home we will have is a physical new earth, and that's for another sermon. But if we die right now prior to the finality of all things, which we'll talk about in a moment, we go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. How can we be in the presence of God? How can we go into the Holy of Holies? I mean, I know you look in the mirror every day. I do. Sometimes I kind of like what I see. Oftentimes I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> Amen? Anybody else? Like, oh Lord, help me. Right? I've been a Christian over three decades and that's my regular prayer. Help me. <laughs> I know who I am. I know how frail and so forth I can be. What is amazing in verse 23 is that the cleansing has happened in my life. I'm now acceptable in the beloved. I now have a clean conscience. That's 914. I now have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to my account simply by placing faith in him. Amen. And that's why when I die, I'll be with the Lord. I don't need an additional cleansing. I've been cleansed from my sin. Amen? Amen. You don't have to walk around under condemnation because there's therefore no, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. You don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to live with uncertainty. And that's what the writer's been trying to say. Don't go back to that system. That system has nothing for you. It's been fulfilled. Don't go back to the shadow. Trust in the substance. Christ has done his cleansing work. And we are often called a dwelling of God. Ephesians 2.22, a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.5, the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Etc. And so notice, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but Christ, notice, entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. His ministry of intercession continues. He's paid the price, but he continues to intercede for us. And I don't think that anybody knows every angle of what that means. Some, some say he's praying for us. Some say that it's just the ongoing effect of his uh, passion, the death and the resurrection of Christ, uh, etc. So that's something that you can walk out. But here's what we know. It's been paid in full. In a rural village lived a doctor who was noted both for his professional skill 
and his devotion to Christ. After his death, his books were examined. Several entries had written on them in red ink, forgiven, too poor to pay. Unfortunately, his wife was of a different disposition, insisting that these debts be settled. She filed a lawsuit before the proper court, went before the judge and was being heard. And the judge asked her, ma'am, is this your husband's handwriting in red, too poor to pay, forgiven? She replied that it was. Then said the judge, not a court in the land can touch those who have been forgiven. And that's our story. We may have an accuser who accuses us day and night, but his accusations mean nothing because he, who is he who can condemn? Christ is the one who paid my ransom. If I have the righteousness of Christ, there's no accusation that could stand in heaven against me and against you. And that's why a Christian can walk in joy and in freedom. Nor was it that he, Christ, should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. The high priest had to go in, we've learned about this, and he had to offer a sacrifice for himself and then do it for the people. Not Christ, and not often, only once. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, keyword, at the consummation of the ages, Jesus has been manifested to do what? To put away sin. You know what that language is? That's the language of what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means your sin has been put away as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. This is literally for the disannulling of sin. How did he do it? By the sacrifice of himself, he put your sin away. You know that he appeared, 1 John 3, 5, in order to take away sins. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Pictured in the scapegoat who carries the sins away on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's the imagery. That's the word forgive, to carry your sin away. And that's what God has done in Christ. Amen? Amen? You don't have to live under condemnation. There is a heretical doctrine out there. I want to say it with all the grace I can to our Roman Catholic friends Ludwig Ott, a Roman Catholic theologian, explains that the perpetual sacrifice dogma, which was made official by the church at the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century, the Holy Mass, he writes, is a true and proper sacrifice. It is physical and propitiatory, removing sins and conferring the grace of repentance. Propitiated by the offering of this sacrifice, God by granting the grace of the gift and the gift of penance, remits trespasses and sins, however grievous they may be. In other words, God's satisfaction regarding sin depends upon the weekly mass. That is why attending mass is so important to Catholics, and that's why Catholic churches are often very crowded on Sundays. I don't say this with any disrespect. I believe there's a lot of wonderful Christians, sincere believers in the Catholic church despite this doctrine. And here's what they believe. They believe at the consecration of the Mass, when the priest prays, that the Eucharist is transubstantiated 
into the literal body, blood, and divinity of Christ, and that somehow he is symbolically, or you could say uh, maybe, well, I guess symbolically is the right word, he is re-crucified over and over again to dispense more grace to the worshipers who come to the Mass. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a once and for all atoning sacrifice that paid for the sins of all believers for all time, once for all. We've been seeing that over and over again in Hebrews. Amen. And with all due respect, I grew up Italian Catholic, so I, I, I think I could say this with some authority. Even though I feared God, I didn't understand grace in that system. Grace was given and then taken back based upon my performance, which is not a good way to live <laughs> because it went like this. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing tonight for inconsistency in the Christian church. I'm not saying, okay, sins are paid for. Just go do what you want now. Yay! No. Because if you do that, you're using grace as an excuse for sin. And let me just say that if you do that, you are inviting the discipline of God into your life. Let me say that one more time. If you mess around as a believer because daddy loves you, you invite his discipline. So don't think that just because you're saved by grace, you can get away with whatever you want. That's not the case. In fact, grace should motivate godly living. Amen? Because he loved me so much, I want to give him my best. And I know that when I blow it, and I do, I have grace that will take care of that. But I want to be as consistent as I can. If he did this for me, how much more should I live for him? Final two verses. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, NIV, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation. Now, you could call this the finality or the consummation of our salvation because salvation has occurred, but we don't have all of its fullness yet. I'll explain that in a second. Without reference to sin, when he comes the second time, sin's already been dealt with, so he's not coming the second time for that. He's coming the second time to bring the fullness of our redemption to those who what? Eagerly await him. Now I know a lot of you personally and I know that a regular uh, refrain in your prayers is come Lord Jesus. And it usually depends. The fervency is based upon the top five news stories usually. Like sometimes, you know, it's, come Lord Jesus. And sometimes it's like, oh, come Lord Jesus. Everything is falling apart, Right? And I get both of those ideas. And I'm glad that Jesus didn't come before the late 80s <laughs> because that's when I came to know the Lord. And uh, some of you, you know, you've become Christians in the last couple of years and you're like, man, those people who were talking about Y2K and 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1988, thank God. You know, and that wasn't the case. But now that I'm saved, I don't really care about those people. So, you know, I'm good. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. No, we don't want to be that way, right? But here's, here's what we know. We know that we have an appointment to die once. And gratefully to die once. And after this, that means, by the way, there's life after death. Because something's going to happen after you die. 
And you know what it will be? It will be judgment. Now, who's that for? Well, your sin was judged at the cross. So you are not going to stand before God to be judged for your sin. So what would your judgment be? Well, you'll stand before the Bema seat of Christ to receive rewards. And some of your work will last and pass the test, and some may not. But a final judgment is nonetheless in mind here, and probably taking us to Matthew 25, when Jesus is pictured as seated on the throne, separating the sheep from the goats, right? And, you know, kind of measuring everything there. And so, notice, we have an appointment. And it's to die once. What you don't want to do is die twice. You don't want to die physically and then experience spiritual death. What you want to have happen is when you die once but you're alive in Christ, you know what Paul says? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because my death will simply usher me into the presence of the Lord. And I don't have to fear it then, right? Because if I fear judgment, I've not been perfected in love, John says, because I, then I don't know the love of Christ. I don't understand the gospel. If I'm a Christian and I keep fearing judgment, I don't understand the cross or the resurrection. Amen? So, so you don't have to live in fear of judgment. All you want to do is just live to please the one who purchased you and know that when you stand before him, it will be a bema and he will give out rewards. Your inheritance is eternal. Amen? Amen? It's undefiled, unspoiled. No one's taking it away. This is 1 Peter 1, I think it's verse 4. It's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. You say, well, how do I really know, though? You know? I mean, we all probably have those moments driving in your car. Man, been a Christian for this long and preaching the gospel and telling my friends, but how do I really know? You know how you know? You have a down payment. The Holy Spirit has been given to you and me as a down payment guaranteeing our future redemption. If you know that the spirit of the living God lives inside of you, you already have the down payment. And that's how God has guaranteed it. It's, he's the earnest money. The very presence of God is God's guarantee that he's gonna finish what he started in you. Amen? That's the beauty of the promise. And so what we have in verse 28, final verse, is once again Yom Kippur imagery, Day of Atonement, once a year. But here Christ is pictured as going into the Holy of Holies and he will appear a second time. Now when the children of Israel, when everything was put together on this one solemn uh, day in the fall for Israel, they had this day of atonement, and it was supposed to be uh, an atonement for all retroactive sins committed in the previous year. So everything that you did wrong as, as a nation uh, was supposed to be dealt with on the day of atonement. And the high priest had to do all of his preparation, and we talked a little bit about the rope that would be tied to his leg and some of the tradition, just in case he died in there. He had to do everything the right way, and he would go in there, and no one... No one else could go in. The priests, even the priests could, could not enter the Holy of Holies, but 
the average person was just kind of looking over the curtains. And you know where they were waiting for? Did, did he come out? <laughs> There's a lot at stake here. You know, the, the national sins for the last year. I've been recounting them as we're waiting for this guy. I hope, I hope he dressed right and did things right and the, and the blood atonement for his family was right and he didn't mess anything up. Is he coming out? Did he come out? You know, you can imagine maybe, you know, thousands, millions of people waiting. And when he reemerged, everybody's like, oh, thank you. There he is. Forgiveness. Hallelujah. Right? Well, when Christ comes a second time, He's going to reemerge from the Holy of Holies in heaven. And we are looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Are you eagerly waiting for him? And when he comes, you know what it's going to be? It's not going to be salvation, it is finished, like from the cross. It's going to be a second, it is finished. It's time for new bodies. It's time for a resurrection. It's time for the marriage supper or whatever we're going to experience it's going to be all there when he reemerges or he reappears at the second coming. He came at the first coming, fulfilled. He's got a current ministry in the Holy of Holies right now, interceding for you. That's how much he loves you. And when he comes again, resurrection time, fullness of the inheritance time, wiping away every tear from our eyes, glory. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for this great section. Thank you for the precious people of God who are standing on the promises. Thank you for an eternal inheritance, undefiled, unspoiled, reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God. That power is in us as believers, and we're grateful for it. It's a keeping power. The inheritance that we have is eternal, and it's all linked to the testator who was killed for my transgression, who died for my iniquity, who purchased my redemption, and who covered me in his blood. Oh, Lord, what can we say to such amazing promises? Only we can say thank you, Lord. Thank you for so great a salvation. And I pray that we as a church, as we bask in the beauty of that salvation, would be filled with the spirit, filled with the joy, the love that we'd want to share this with others, Lord. Help us to be about your business. And for anyone who hears my voice right now and doesn't know you yet, I pray that they would trust in Jesus alone, not in self-help programs. They can be helpful to an extent, not in their own merit, not in their own effort, but in the finished work of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.